we strive. Welcome to season two of the We Strive podcast. We interview entrepreneurs who are hustling, who have had exits, and are out there changing the world. Entrepreneurship is all about getting places that you weren't supposed to get to. It's about creating something out of nothing, and the people we interview do just that. I'm your host, Corey McCain, CEO and founder of the We Strive personal training platform, and I am so happy to announce that we finally launched. I could not be more excited. Go check us out on iOS and Android to discover hundreds of personal trainers and thousands of full-length fitness plans. And if you're a personal trainer, go check us out at WeStriveApp.com. I truly hope you enjoyed this podcast. We get some of the best entrepreneurs on the show. And each week, I hope you can learn something or at least really just enjoy the episode. Thanks for all your support. I'm going to be cheesy here. I hope you find your strive in 2020. Cheers. This week, we have Maeve Garrigan, who is the founder and CEO of Roper, which is the best technology in the world for ranchers. It's a solar-powered GPS ear tag for cattle, helps ranchers see where their cattle are, checks their health vitals, and so much more. Uh, talk about crazy things in this interview, like she was working on exoskeletons in the military for this advanced technologies and all this stuff that I don't know anything about. Uh, she's incredibly smart, and I really hope you guys enjoy the episode and get to hear more about her successful company, Roper. I'm Maeve Garrigan. I'm founder and CEO of Roper. And with Roper, we're revolutionizing beef production. So specifically, we're developing a technology that overcomes key risks and inefficiencies. And that technology is a solar-powered, GPS-enabled health wearable. It's an, it's an ear tag, sort of like a Fitbit for cows. And this technology uh, allows ranchers to see in near real time where their cattle are and how their cows are doing, their health condition. And these two kind of key pieces of information are not available with current technology that's out there for this market. And so with these key pieces of information, ranchers can really are just empowered by this, this data. They can pinpoint uh, animals that are sick or distressed. They can you know, maximize their herd fertility with being able to detect estrus, uh, sustainably manage grazing because all of our data is geospatially enabled so they can see where the cows are and look at their behavior. And also it really streamlines and automates record keeping, which is huge for being able to keep track of vaccination and medical records for cattle, which really impacts um, those cows as they're, you know, and steers and uh, bulls as they're moving throughout the uh, supply chain. Now that's incredible. I mean, I don't know anything about that space, but that makes sense to me. Um, so do they see that in like a, like a map, they'll see like little bleeps and or little uh, like lights or something like that where they are. Or like, how do they? See, is there an app? Like, how do they see where the cows are using the technology? Yeah, exactly right. So you know, we've got multiple pieces of the technology. So it's kind of you know three core pieces. One's you know the the wearable that's on the animal, and that wearable is you know collecting the animal's unique data. It's got a you know a GPS receiver on it, so it's getting that GPS information. It has an accelerometer. It's looking at the animal's uh, behavior. It has a microcontroller on that device, and that uh, allows 
you to you know be able to run algorithms and determine the animal's health state and look for um, biomarkers that indicate you know disease, uh, asterisk, other health conditions. And then we have a long range, uh, you know, communications technology. And that's kind of a big piece of our secret sauce is being able to provide that long range communications that makes this type of technology feasible in a rangeland or pasture environment. And that's what's really missing in the market right now is there's some great technologies that are short range. So there's similar technology out there for dairy cattle. Uh, but it doesn't have any kind of range. It just you know works inside of a barn or a corral. So that's a big piece of it is just that that hardware element and that communications element. And then for the user side of it, it's exactly right what you just said is that, you know interfaces with a mobile app. Um, and that app is, is kind of like Google Maps, you know, and that's actually in our alpha prototype. We had a, you know Google Earth integration and you you know you get that dot of where the animal is at, you know, on on the world and you're also able to see you know you know kind of a green yellow red understanding you know the uh, whether or not there's an alert associated with that unique animal and its location no that's great and honestly like i i want to ask you because I, I mean i can imagine it's incredibly stressful to manage all that cattle across all that land and i want to ask you how many acres the average is but i really don't even honestly know how big an acre is if you asked me how big an acre was i could not <laughs> tell you um but i'm assuming they have like lots of acres though <laughs> like i'm assuming that's how it is yes you're assuming right and it's actually there's a lot of interesting intricacies within the beef production industry so for example in places like New Mexico or West Texas or Arizona, you might see uh, one animal, one cow for every, say, 60 acres, every 100 acres, which is quite a bit. Um, and then, but for example, if you're in Central Texas, like around Austin, it might be one or two cows per acre. And that's called a stocking rate. Stocking rates of kind of proportion of cows per acreage and that varies quite a bit, but it also introduces different issues. So in places like uh, you know, Central Texas, you don't tend to have a lot of large contiguous pastures. So you're not gonna have you know, a single plot of land with you know, 20,000 acres. There are a few ranches that are that size in this area, but typically you, know, you, don't, you don't see that. And so folks will have to lease land in different locations. They might have cows in one pasture in one location and then miles away they'll have cows in another pasture in another location. And so that creates a huge management issue, just keeping track of where everybody's at in these dis disparate, disaggregated locations. Not to mention that a, a lot of ranchers have, you know, other jobs. You know, the, the typical cow-calf operation is run by, you know, a, a couple or run by siblings family type operations. So a lot of folks have off farm, off ranch jobs. So being able to keep track of those animals throughout the day can be you know, very challenging. If you move to other locations in the country, uh, like I said, in, in New Mexico, I mean, you might not see the animals uh, for months at a time. If they're out in a austere range location, remote, remote locations, it's entirely possible that the animals are only gathered up twice a year springtime and fall time. Um, and that leaves a lot of time for things to go wrong. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, wild cows 
out in the woods and, you know, they may or may not turn up and they may disappear and people may never know what happens to them. So it's, it really is, you know, as you kind of start peeling the layers on the industry, it's fascinating the, the level of diversity and management as kind of driven by the type of terrain and vegetation. Uh, and then just, you know, the unique challenges that that poses to ranchers. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's a tremendous management challenge for folks everywhere. We'll get back to this, uh, this subject too, but I, w- I would love to hear about your experience because I was looking through your website and so you have 20 plus years in R&D and we'll get to that in a sec, but you have your BSME and your M, I'm assuming that's your master's of econ, right? Mm-hmm. M.econ, that's right, okay, cool. And then uh, I already forgot what BSME stand for, so bachelor's of science in, is it mechanical engineering? That's correct. Oh, sweet, I got it, cool. Yeah, Johns Hopkins, that's so incredible. So what was your experience you. like right like there? Was it uh, was it hard getting your uh, your master's and you know and your bachelor's in two really hard degrees for you or was it kind of like natural? Kind of natural. Well, I think that it was it was definitely challenging for me. Um, you know, I uh, grew up, you know, extremely modest means in a small farm in Western Oregon in the Lamma Valley. And uh, you know, was a first-generation college student. In retrospect, I may not have selected Johns Hopkins as, you know, my first uh, first go at uh, college, and also, you know, first time I'd ever been, um, you know, east of the Mississippi. So it was quite a culture shock for me to go from, you know, being this farm kid from Oregon, going to, you know, downtown Baltimore, and going to college with frankly, a bunch of rich kids from, you know, New Jersey, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah, no, I'm sure uh, that's a huge culture shock. Yeah, it was, it was, it was tremendous. And, you know, to be, to give Hopkins credit in the, you know, past couple of years, they got a tremendous endowment from uh, Michael Bloomberg, who's one of our, you know, more uh, successful alums. Uh, but, you know, and that's really enabled them to make some changes regarding admissions. But at the time, you know, it was a very small fraction of students at Hopkins who are actually like Pell Grant eligible, which is, you know, based on being a a lower income. So it was, you know, a huge culture shock, both, you know, from regionally, um, from, you know, kind of the cultural background that I was coming from, um, and then also financially of just, you know, I was, I had no money and, you know, I'd grown up with no money and it was, uh, you know, strange kind of being in a situation where, you know, everybody's, you know, got, you know, BMWs and Land Rovers and cell phones uh, before that was uh, a thing to have. Um, for the, the studies, I mean, it was, it was, it, I think going to Hopkins kind of forged uh, my capacity and interest specifically in focusing in research and development. So um, I worked in a robotics lab working in unmanned underwater vehicles and that you know that was kind of a weird thing to be working on in the 1990s and that kind of started that you know zest of always exploring things that were, were strange and pushing the envelope and exploring how we can apply technology in new and innovative ways to solve real problems so that's something that's you know continued with me uh, throughout my career and then, and then I saw, and that, I mean, it's all incredible, way over my head, could never do that. Um, but I saw that you had over 20 years of experience in R&D. So what, is, what does that entail? Like what, 
yeah, like what, what kind of R&D, what fields are you in and all that? Right, right. So the bulk of my career is was spent uh, working for elite military commands. Uh, so first job out of college, uh, you know, said, like I said, I was working in a robotics lab. We built, um, you know, tethered uh, ROVs and uh, autonomous underwater vehicles. And so that kind of rolled into a job working uh, at Naval Surface Warfare Center in Panama City, Florida. And uh, there uh, did some work in uh, submersibles, uh, but primarily my focus was in personal protective equipment. So I know gas masks, uh, chem suits, gloves, uh, things of that nature. And so a big piece of that R&D is, you know, you're the core of it is finding, you know, new and promising technologies that solve operational deficiencies. So part of it's understanding those operational deficiencies. So knowing what a mission is, knowing uh, where there are risks and inefficiencies and gaps and being able to perform that mission. And then, you know, understanding, uh, you know, current and emergent technologies and being able to apply those technologies and then figuring out, okay, how do we actually you know, execute a project to explore the application of that technology? And if it proves out, how do we transition that um, into you know, a piece of equipment uh, that we're gonna be fielding to military personnel? So my entire career you know, for uh, was, you know, 16, 17 years, was spent doing that in, in one form or another. So I worked at you know the Naval Surface Warfare Center level. I worked um, at Chief of Naval Operations, working in uh, requirements for uh, anti-terrorism force protection and chem biodefense, and uh, worked for Navy Region Southwest, uh, which you know manages all of the the Navy bases in California and Nevada, and also working for uh, Naval Special Warfare. Uh, in San Diego, which is, uh, you know, kind of the, the head command for Navy SEALs and then also working for uh, U.S. SOCOM. And so all of those kind of same sort of thing is just, you know, exploring ways that we can, you know, identifying those, those operational shortfalls. So a lot of interaction with Navy SEALs and other operators to understand, um, you know, they've just come off of deployment, you know, what problems do they have? You know, they have an issue with weapon systems, they have issues with, um, you know, their ability to uh, conduct reconnaissance, so the issues with any of their gear and understanding those problems, documenting those problems, um, coming up with technology solutions for them, and then overseeing the execution of a projects to rapidly evaluate and acquire those technologies. So, so I think some of the kind of the more interesting pro I, interesting projects I've worked on has been like a powered armored exoskeleton. So that was a what? pretty uh, Oh, that's so badass. Yeah, well, it's, it's I feel like everything's cooler when it's you're at the outside looking in and not the inside looking out, but that was that was pretty cool and uh, it I'd say that that experience definitely uh, you know, kind of reinvigorated my creative zest for, um, you know, building new exciting stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, some other interesting robotics projects of, you know, militarized jet skis, um, different types of, you know, tactical equipment and weapons, uh, you know, 
automated weapons, a lot of really cool things I can't really get into uh, for obvious reasons. <laughs> but, uh, hey, fair but, enough. Uh, we'll, we'll turn the cord off really like, quick. You can tell me. Just kidding. Right. I could, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Super awkward. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's obviously it's a very varied experience. And I think, you know, it's very lucky to have been able to work with the caliber of folks who I have worked with over the years, as well as at different levels. So like I mentioned, you know, working at Chief of Naval Operations, you know, this Pentagon, that's Echelon One Command, all the way down to, you know, a SEAL team, you know, platoon level, you know, talking with guys who just came off a deployment and hearing from them firsthand what their issues are, then working hand in glove with coming up with solutions. So, um, you know, and that's kind of the beauty of having spent 20 years in doing something as I've lived all over the country, traveled all over the country and the world, um, you know, and just been able to constantly be tackling really hard problems in creative ways and not only tackling those problems, but delivering solutions that actually work. And that really was a, you know, it wasn't intentional, but that provided the foundation for what we're working on now and the foundation for the success. Um, you know, one of the things I think is kind of funny is that I think that there's the, the archetype of the, you know, the startup founders is, you know, bright eyed, you know, 20 something. Um, but I do think there's something to be said. And I believe that the evidence supports me that, you know, folks who are a little bit older, you know, maybe a little middle aged, like uh, myself and my co-founder, we've had our successes, we've had our failures. We also developed that seat of the pants understanding of how to apply technology and working through problems. And um, I'd say that that served that experience has served us very well. Yeah, no, I mean that I don't even know what to say. That's you know, <laughs> this is way cooler than what I'm doing. Uh, so did you? So you might have mentioned this, and I might have missed it. Did you meet your your partner? Because your partner is in the Navy SEALs, or he's an ex Navy SEAL. Did you meet him through this platform or through this process? I mean, or was it just like you later happened to be a Navy SEAL? No. So Dana and I uh, first worked together about five years ago. Uh, so he was a Navy SEAL commander uh, working at a West Coast command, and I was working at you know, Naval Surface Warfare Command kind of right across the street there at Silver Strand. And my job was scouting and uh, transitioning new technologies. So uh, we you know, collaborated on a project involving you know, tactical uh, applications for man-portable drones. And, you know, we just, you know, we hit it off. Uh, we also both attended Johns Hopkins SICE, uh, where, you know, I got my uh, degree in international economics and strategic studies. And, you know, Dana also, uh, he uh, had a focus in strategic studies as well. And so that kind of really just, you know, that, that commonality of experience, you know, both being, um, you know, in service to an elite community. And that's something that really kind of, brings us together and pushes us forward today is that sense of service and that sense of, you know, understanding, you know, a user community, understanding their problems in a really deep and intimate way and having that sense of service of, you know, understanding that technology only matters if it helps people 
and specifically, you know, helping real people with real problems. And that's what we're getting after. That's a good quote. I like that. It's a really good quote. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'm actually, I'm probably going to use that to pull out the quote for the, to represent the podcast. That was pretty good. Yeah, thank you. Um, and Not the I, first time I, I said that. The, so. Sorry, I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like, I definitely didn't make that up. Uh, well, uh, so you guys won a $120,000 grant. Um, what type of a grant was that? Like, what was it for? Did you have to like work really hard for it? Or did you just get it because your stuff's so cool? Can you kind of break that down? <laughs> well, actually, to date, since starting, um, since founding Roper in June of 2018, we've won $344,000 in zero equity uh, grants and prizes. So, uh, wow. yeah, that's uh, that's no joke. And, you know, I'd like to say that some of that's yeah, due to my awesome. um, rhetorical prowess. Uh, although I think, like I said, a lot of that, and I, I honestly believe that that kind of continued high level of external support really speaks to the importance of what we're working on and our ability to execute. So the fact that we're able to hit milestones and deliver results and that we're getting after a really big problem that people really care about. And that's what's driving that, that dollar amount. So that $120,000 grant specifically uh, came from the New Mexico Small Business Assistance Program and it's the third grant that we've won from them. So the first one was, you know, a $20,000 grant, uh, got that back in 2018, and that enabled us to do a proof of concept. So I had an idea, I'm like, hey, I think, you know, I think technology is at a point where we could develop, um, you know, a small uh, animal-worn device that would allow us to provide, you know, geolocation and physiological monitoring of cattle. Like okay, cool. So you know, we did that project. Hey, everything's looking good. We think we can do it in a you know a low size, weight, power, low cost uh, solution. And then uh, built a, a, a team with you know rancher support, uh, and we we're able to win a hundred thousand dollar grant for uh, 2019. And at the time, that was. Um, the, the only grant that was fully funded at the $100,000 level for that program. So six months into that, so by you know, the end of June of 2019, we delivered our alpha prototype. So we had a working piece of hardware, you know, custom board design, um, you know, firmware. We had you know, user interface so we could Know, show the sensor stream coming off the device. We could show the geolocation with the Google Earth integration. Um, so that was to me that's just a tremendous accomplishment of you know showing the you know cohesion of our engineering team and our ability to um, execute on our requirements that we developed with support from our ranchers. Um, building on that, we were able to go back in and win the $120,000 grant. So that grant supports uh, R&D for this year, for 2020. And that was the, the largest grant ever awarded by that program. So, you know, thinking back on the success of like, okay, well, you know, this has been obviously tremendous, you know, 
success for us, but it is specifically because we've been able to set milestones, meet those milestones, and uh, you know shape that around the needs of uh, a user community and being extremely responsive and tuned into those needs. And I think I, would, I see a lot of folks, you know, they're kind of, they're spitballing a lot of ideas and they don't really understand the user. And that's something where, you know, Dana and I are extremely strong. That's what we grew up doing was listening to, listening to war fighters and understanding their problems in a really fundamental way and being able to creatively problem solve around those problems. And that's what we're doing now with ranchers. Yeah, it, I was going to say, I mean, would you have any advice with like very like applicable advice for people that want to get grants out there? Um, obviously, like my company couldn't get a grant. I mean, maybe not obviously, but, you know, there's a lot of companies like yours, which are very like grant friendly. So do you have advice for people like that that are having that are trying to get a grant going? I say that each sector is very unique, you know, depending on, you know, what type of problem you're trying to solve. I think there, I see that, you know, there's interesting stuff, that, stuff out there, especially in like, you know, the healthcare space, uh, you know, if there's something where you can have a dual purpose product. So if there's some sort of international development angle or, you know, defense angle, oftentimes you're able to, you know, build off of that. For example, um, uh, the Navy, you know, small business program just put out a BAA and they're specifically looking for dual purpose technologies. So technologies that have that both civilian and defense applications. Um, but I honestly think a lot of it just comes down to, you know, you have to understand your space really well. And I think, I, I, I'm not going to say I think, I know <laughs> that a, a lot of, uh, you know, entrepreneurs out there, they're looking for an easy button and uh, there is no easy button. Exactly, it's, yeah. You have to know your space better than anyone else. And when you know your space better than anyone else, you're going to be able to ferret out those opportunities and find those folks that you need to partner with. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there's there's so many times in, you know, especially in what I'm doing as well, where there are so many easy routes and easy outs and it's, and I'll, I'll, I'll have an idea kind of like a grant and then I'll apply for something like one time and then I'll be frustrated that I don't get it. And then I'll tell myself, well, obviously you didn't get it. You did like 30 minutes of work. <laughs> so, right. I mean, I think there's, that's very applicable across a lot of different entrepreneurship fields where, you know, it's not, it's not easy. And if you put in the time, it still might not even work out for you, but either way you have to put the time in. Um, and so that's cool. And I think it's a huge thing with your guys' milestones. Right. So I think part of that is, you know, putting in the time is, you know, a cost of doing business. Uh, I do think it's important to understand when there's diminishing returns and understanding when, you know, the juice might not be worth the squeeze. Yeah. So, you know, we have certain criteria of what we're looking for in any type of opportunity that we enter into. So, uh, for example, you know, specifically looking at grants that or prizes, et cetera, that don't require any sort of there, there's no investment. There's no promise of future equity or return. It's, you know, no strings attached. And so that's that's the requirement for us. It may not be a requirement for everyone, but again, you know, juice worth the squeeze and then also certain a dollar threshold. So some things, you know, something's five thousand dollars unless it's really, unless it is at 30 minutes, <laughs> you know, I, we're not going to be spending a lot of time uh, pursuing that. 
Another is just, you know, understanding, you know, is this a group that's going to be receptive to you? So there's going to be certain elements, like let's say you're applying for an NIH grant or um, NSF grant. If you don't have someone with, you know, experience as a principal investigator with a PhD and the appropriate, uh, you know, area of study with tons of research under their belt, you're not going to get the grant. You know, or if you do, it's going to be a freak accident yeah. that you did. So, you know, so just being clear eyed about it, you know, and I think there's just those, you know, paths of just being able to kind of rack and stack those opportunities and then, you know, taking rifle shots instead of shotgunning. And I think people make that mistake in shotgunning because they, A, they set themselves up for failure and they also waste a lot of energy. So we're, we're, we're snipers. Uh, not uh not shotgunners i like that no, that's true i mean honestly that's a that's a really good analogy i mean yeah like to to what i was saying to what you're saying i mean giving it the diminishing returns of putting like 30 minutes to an hour and a half into something that you know you're not going to commit to is basically pointless so it's like more and more i'm getting the mentality and i'm forcing myself to do this where if i know i'm not going to commit to an idea i don't even let myself start it oh, so absolutely. it's like if, if yeah. i if I'm looking to like add a new a new feature to the app, and I I'll give myself like a minute to go like, am I actually gonna put this in the app? And then if I decide I might not do it, I just don't even waste the time for it because, um, yeah, it's if it's not if it's not worth your time, it's not worth your time. So I yeah I totally agree with that. Exactly. If it, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I want to go back to your product. Um, so do you guys have like any mm -hmm. competitors in any way or? I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings if they're listening to this, but I don't see any valid competitors in the beef space. Um, so like, like I mentioned earlier, there's some really interesting work being done in the dairy space, you know, and, and to me, that's been fantastic to see because that's a wonderful proof of concept for us of showing that, Hey, you know, these you know, small ICs, these sensors that we can buy commercially and, and integrate into a package can tell us an animal's health state, uh, but they really are missing the that, you know, autonomously powered element and they're missing that communications range element, as well as the, the, geo, the specific geolocation, the GPS positioning. So there are, well, there you know, you Allflex, which is owned by Merck, um, has a really strong dairy product that, that they've been trying to market for beef cattle uh, with limited success because it has a quarter mile range, which makes it, um, you know, impractical for, you know, cattle at pasture. Yeah. Um, and there's also a couple other companies. Uh, there's a company called Herd Dog that has something of a, somewhat of an animal agnostic um you know, tracking, they use uh, Bluetooth for their communications. So that's about a 50 foot range. So you have to be within you know, 50 feet of, um, you know, base station. So there's, there's competition that's out there, but, uh, you know, not a tremendous amount of market penetration, specifically in the beef sector. And, you know, I, I think part of that comes down to the fact that none of these solutions to date have really been really practical for ranchers and ranchers are extremely practical people. You know, they're not going to be like, Oh, I think I'm just going to spend several thousand dollars on this and see if it works. You know, like they, they need to see the proof in the pudding. 
Yeah, no, and I totally agree. I mean, it's I'm kind of I mean to talk about my competitors and not really in detail, but I'm in the same boat. I you know I think it's all about the user experience and the reason that. I've spent so much money and so much time on what we're building is that I've seen that our competitors give a really crappy experience and it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I think making your customers happy should be the number one priority. And so obviously you guys looked at your market, you're like, well, if it only does it for a quarter mile and there's so many acres in a pasture, then why would <laughs> why would you ever use that? So, I mean, that makes sense to me. So it blows my mind that a full grown right. company with tons of backing behind them wouldn't, wouldn't you know, see that problem oh i guess say like so they do see the problem um i actually had the the i was at the uh an event in kansas city last year where i got to hobnob with a bunch of animal health company executives including a couple gentlemen from merck and uh it was a fascinating discussion because they were uh, you know one of the, the one of the fellows was busily taking notes they're peppering me with questions about what we're developing and he's taking notes and I asked him like, Hey, are you going to take that back to your engineers? <laughs> yeah. He's like, Oh, well, you know, I mean, what? and I'm like, you know, you're absolutely welcome to, because my engineers are better than yours. Oh, <laughs> and I know I said, but I say that unreservedly because if you think about it, a, a large multinational multi-billion dollar publicly held animal health company that excels at developing new pharmaceuticals and vaccines, is incredibly ill-suited to develop new hardware. <laughs> you know, like that's, yeah, no, exactly. It's not even apples and oranges. That's like you're on a, you're on a different planet, you know, and uh, so, and they know that. I mean, that was a, I had a very frank conversation. Like, hey, you know, we know that you have to if you want this type of technology, you have to wait for someone else to build it, and then you buy that company. And that's exactly what Merck did in, in 2018 is they bought a company called Intellic for uh, $2.4 billion. And, you know, that Intellic, correct. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, a, that's a, no uh, small amount of money. And that allowed them to, you know, purchase the uh, animal... Uh, health and tracking technologies that Intellic had developed. And so a piece of, you know, subsidiary to that uh, Intellic was SCR and SCR was a company that developed the, the technology that I mentioned that Allflex is using uh, in the, the dairy sector, in the dairy sector. Um, but they, they're well aware. I mean, I think it's, I think, I guess the other word of advice to folks working especially if they're working in hardware, which, you know, many companies are not well suited to do, is understanding that even if someone has the same idea as you, it's incredibly hard to execute. And it's even harder to execute yeah. well. And, you know, so, so what that Merck has, you know, billions of dollars to throw around, it doesn't mean that they are optimally well executed or well, well positioned to execute a hardware project. They, I'm sure they could, they could beat me easily building a, you know, making new pharmaceuticals for animals. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. That, yeah, but that's really, also not my yeah. expertise, but this is what I do is yeah. I build stuff, you know, they don't. Yeah. That's such a badass mindset to have. I mean, a lot of times, uh, you know, companies will, you know, they'll get, they'll get really scared because a competitor will have way more money than them. 
but then I'm I'm kind of in the same boat too. I mean, I'm definitely not as confident, but because I, I can't, I'm not the engineer, so I can't be like, well, I'm, I know for a fact we're better engineers. But <laughs> I mean, for me, it's like my competitors have 20 times more funding than I do. Yeah. And for me, I can kind of just, you know, and, and I know we have better software. And it's like, well, if you had 20 times more funding and we built better software, then I mean, like, you know, A plus B equals C, like we're, we're better than you. I mean, it's like, so that's, I think it's a really cool mentality to have. And I'm working on getting more confident like that, but I think I'm, I'm getting there. Um, right. And then one thing I wanted to ask you was uh, how, uh, like, how big do you see this market? Do you see your guys, you see yourselves exiting at some point? Like, what is your mindset with all of that? Right, right. Actually, before I, before I move on to that question, I did want to say that with, you know, specifically in the animal healthcare space, and this also may apply to what you're working on as well. You could have the most amazing product in the world, best software, best hardware, but you still have to get it in the hands of the customer and you still need to have that great marketing. So you're able to outshine that lesser product, that lesser software. Um, and so that's where a company like Merck or Zoetis or Alonco, one of these other big animal healthcare companies, that's where that could very well be like a you know sales channel partner um, because they have that, that marketing horsepower and they have that, um, those existing sales channels. And so that's where I see this. This isn't so much a competition. It's like, oh, you know, my engineers are better than yours. I mean, that's just me speaking the truth. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's also understanding that you you can also have a symbiotic relationship, right? So there's things that we're going to have our comparative advantage in, and there's things that they're going to have their comparative advantage in, and then you you work together. You you leverage both of your strengths, and you know create value uh, for both entities that way. Um, and so that's something, you know, kind of, and then moving on to your question regarding the market is, you know, we see a $2.7 billion market that's based on um, bottom-up market estimate. And so we're basing that based on our subscription pricing. So we've priced this out at two different levels. One is for, um, has the, the estrus monitoring and that's meaning that if someone's having a very intensive um, you know breeding program they're doing artificial insemination they're doing IVF they're harvesting embryos they have high value cattle they, they would pay more they'd be paying um, you know eight dollars per cow per month um, and then we would also have a, a lower tier which would simply be you know disease monitoring and geolocation and that would be at $4 per animal per month. And since there are, you know, millions of beef cattle in the United States that scales up pretty quickly, you know, there's, you know, 38 million um, cows and then, you know, probably an additional, you know, 15, 20 million uh, steers and bulls. And so that, that adds up really quickly. And that's where we came up with that total addressable market of 2.7 billion. That's strictly based on those um, subscription sales. Um, so one of the interesting angles that we want to pursue is also looking at the value of the data that we have. And we're not really ready to get into a multi-sided market right now because we really need to be able to establish ourselves and with the, the ranchers, um, but then also understanding once you have that data and you're able to start analyzing 
large bodies of data you know, aggregated across a region or a state or on a national or global scale of you know, what additional insights and value can, can you extract from that data. So one of the, the key reasons of why a company like Merck might spend you know, $2.4 billion on uh, acquiring Antelic is so they can receive that really granular specific data regarding how an individual animal is doing and where the animal is. So it's analogous to a companion diagnostic that you might see in the human healthcare sector where you're able to drive, um, you know, pharmaceutical products, you know, medical care, et cetera, to an individual person knowing what, you know, their unique needs and what their unique pathologies are. And being able to have this very, you know, granular, geospatially enabled, um, you know, near real time tracking of animal health and location, you're able to do the same with, um, you know, animal healthcare products, which, really revolutionize you know logistics and supply chain for them as well as helping them you know better you know target uh you know the new new pharmaceutical markets no i think this could be huge and i'm actually i'm i'm pumped to say that after this podcast i can tell people that i know someone a key player in the uh beef technology space so uh, <laughs> it's a new it's a new thing i have hashtag beef tech See, beef tech, it's the new its the new thing to invest in. Um, so this has been really cool. I've learned a lot of stuff. Uh, do you have anything you want to leave entrepreneurs with? Um, maybe entrepreneurs specifically that are making like a physical tech product, like a, a, any hardware? I would say to routinely talk to your users and not just some sort of focus group where you bring them in and you're making them feel good about themselves, but creating you know turnover in the folks that you're talking with or at least having a milieu of people that you're different groups of people you're talking to on a regular basis and having the comfort where they can criticize you because you are looking for passion you're looking for people who hate what you're doing or love what you're doing because you'll learn something from hate and love you won't learn anything from apathy you won't learn anything from like, oh, that's okay, or oh, I like it. You want someone to hate it, or you want them to love it. And those are the people you want to be able to create those um, situations where you can have that either positive or negative conflict and being able to hone what you're working on from that. And, you know, I say conflict, but understanding that you have to be able to accept that gracefully as well. So this isn't about you. And I'd say that's the other big piece of it is understanding that it may be your idea, but you are merely the shepherd for the solution. You're the, you're the caretaker and you have to be receptive to potentially, you know, extremely negative feedback from people and understanding where that's coming from. It may be coming from a place that's useful for you. It may be coming from a place that is not useful. If people need to be in the correct position to be able to criticize you, they have to understand what the context is. Um, but at the same time, you know, creating a good environment for that feedback. So, you know, standing up working groups and having those working groups on a regular basis and encouraging um, spirited participation is something that is critical for successfully developing new products. 
I could not agree more. Yeah, being criticized is the best way. Whenever someone gives me uh, super biased feedback or they're like trying to be really nice about it, I'm like, dude, you're literally wasting my time. I would love right. to hear what you actually think. It could it could save me tens of thousands of dollars if you just don't lie to my face right now. <laughs> like, if you don't like this, tell me. Um, right. Or, so yeah, or, I could not agree they, more. Or sometimes people they won't have the expertise and they'll kind of pretend that they are, you know? Um, and so just, you know, being wary of that as well, just because someone criticizes you doesn't mean you should listen to them. But if they are, you should also need to be keenly aware of, Hey, this is someone I should listen to. They're criticizing me and taking that on board. Exactly. Yeah. I could not agree more. Um, well, this was cool. This was really fun. I learned a lot and I'm excited to see what you guys do in hashtag beef tech. <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely look forward to sharing more. We've got some really interesting uh, events lined up for this coming year. We're going to be at the National uh, Cattlemen's Beef Association meeting in uh, San Antonio. Uh, and also we're going to be at the um, Animal Ag Tech Summit, uh, March 16th, I think I, either 16th or 17th in San Francisco. And so that's going to be really fun. It's actually going to be our first official booth type setting that we're going to be at. Usually we're just hanging out and talking with folks. So that's going to be our, our first, uh, big kid event where we've got our logo up and, uh, you know, showing our demos to folks. That's awesome. Well, I wish you guys the best of luck. Definitely doing those in-person uh, in-person events are definitely the best way to kind of grow your brand and get those investors. Oh, absolutely. Well, we're not really pursuing investors through. Uh, yeah, you probably don't need uh, investors. Yeah. Public events. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But we're a little bit more low key there. than that. But uh, yeah, now, it's good to yeah, get. Yeah, I mean, enough, it's good enough. to get the word out there, especially with the ranchers. You know. If, uh, you know, kind of spreading out from the Southwest and Texas and getting the word out to folks in the East Coast and up in the mountain states. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll uh, talk soon. Thank you, Corey. Take care. So first of all, you guys are all so amazing. We hit 10,000 downloads for the first season alone. I don't know if that's going to go up or go down for season two, but I'm just really excited. I got to meet the coolest people, got to travel around mostly the LA area and just meet people that have done some amazing things. I was at NFL Network interviewing the VP of the NFL. I went to the Hollywood Hills, was interviewing Garen Jones. I went to the other side of the Hollywood Hills. I was interviewing Ian Chen, got to see their home office. I mean, it was such a cool experience. I'm so thankful that you guys were a part of it. And I've got some, I'm not going to say better, but I've got some really awesome interviews coming at you for season two. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. I guarantee I don't update this till the end of season two. So if you're watching the last episode of season two and I'm hyping you up for all the episodes of season two, sorry about that. Guarantee I'll forget. And uh, cool guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of this. Please leave five stars if you can in the, in the podcast store. I don't think Google allows you to do that. But uh, leave a mental five stars if you want and feel free and comment. Give me some feedback. I'm always looking to improve. And just thank you so much for being a part of the We Strive podcast.